Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast in association with Property Week. My name's Andrew Teacher and I'm joined this week by Lisette Van Dorn, who's Chief Executive of ULI in Europe. Lisette, fantastic to see you. Thank you for coming in. Now, where do we start? Because Europe's a big place and you cover quite a lot of ground on any given month traveling across all sorts of cities. You've been in the market, in the real estate market, for just over 20 years. There's a lot we could talk about today on different sectors, on your campaigning work around climate change and ESG, and a lot of the other insights and research that you're overseeing around social value. But let's start with some of the mega trends, really, of the last two decades or so. What do you think some of those big shifts have been since you came into this space in the late 90s? Well, thanks for having me, Andy. I really appreciate it. Well, a lot has happened in the last 20 years. When I started in real estate, early 2000s, there was no global real estate market. It was still all very local. Mm. Institutional investors started to explore more indirect ways of investing. We saw the growth in fund managers, bigger investment management opening up real estate businesses. And that's evolved very quickly. And of course, there were a couple of tailwinds, not necessarily just exclusively beneficial for real estate in Mm. terms of lowering interest rates, a bigger focus on investment generally. And that has really helped grow the real estate world and also make it much more international. I guess the internet as well, right, in terms of just sharing data and having access to different things that we didn't previously have access to. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, big megatrends have helped the interest in certain types of real estate. The internet has been the big driver behind logistics real estate to grow, which at that time wasn't even a sector. Mm. We were basically only looking at offices and residential. Well, and yeah, and the Amazon was still a bunch of trees in South America, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) For people that don't know what ULI is, Urban Land Institute, let's just tell listeners what ULI does because people will maybe know ULI through some of its reports like Emerging Trends or through some of the events and conferences. But for people that aren't familiar with ULI, what is ULI? What does it do? ULI is a global network of industry professionals So it's almost 50,000 members across the world that are being brought together by their eagerness to learn from what others are doing, how others are doing things elsewhere, and try to contribute also to that. Obviously, real estate is still a very local business. Many people work just in their city, just in their country. But at the same time, the trends and the challenges we face are very universal And that interest, that curiosity to learn from others brings members at ULI together. Mm. And that curiosity has certainly been one of the prevailing things that I've seen over the years. And as regular listeners to this podcast, I'm a ULI member. I've, I've been a big fan of ULI. And I think for me, the critical element that ULI brings to the table that no other groups bring is a real eagerness to integrate all sorts of different disciplines and that desire and deliberate action to bring together all sorts of people from outside of pure property and that mix of everyone from tech and VC to environmental analysts and engineers and all sorts of other really progressive thinkers alongside very conventional investors, whether that's private equity, fund management. And that's the real uniqueness that I've always seen a lot of value from. And I think now it's really needed more than ever 
particularly as we're seeing a massive blurring of the lines in terms of real estate becoming much more operational, all development being a lot more mixed use. And I know that's one of the things that irks you, isn't it? Is that there's some of this outdated thinking that people will still consider themselves, oh, I'm retail, I'm on the offices side, I'm residential, when in reality, there's very few buildings that are of single use these days. Yes, because we realize that you can't just segment all the different parts and there's value in bringing things together, making buildings more resilient from mm. an investment perspective. And especially real estate becoming so operational means that you need to have an integrated view. But if you look inside organizations, whether it's institutional investors or fund managers, often it's still sector by sector. And yes, while there is obviously the specifics of every different sector, with it becoming so much more operational, there's also that integrated thinking around that that's needed to really make sure that one plus one is three. Yeah, yeah. And bringing the different parts together. And what sorts of investors do you think get that? Because the operationalization of real estate isn't a new thing. We talk about it a lot on this podcast just because it's quite interesting and it's something that we, with my team, have done a fair amount of research on. But it strikes me that there are some parts of the industry that are laggards in that sense. They are very much doing what they did 10, 15 years ago and have not evolved so much. What are the opportunities for those sorts of businesses to change and how can they? Well, I think it has already become a necessity. And if you look at almost all the new sectors emerging, if you look, for example, in Emerging Trends or annual publication with PwC, we've been tracking the number of sectors year on year. We started 20 years ago, we tracked six sectors. Now we track close to 30. And a lot of that is a trend seen in the operationalizing. It is the operations that make the building successful, not the other way around. Whereas 20 years ago, it was having a 25-year lease to a grade A tenant. And if you were in France, you'd go for a very long lunch. If you were in Spain, you'd go to bed and go for a sleep. And if you are in England, you'd just go to the pub for 20 years, right? That was the way so it was done years ago. So I'm being very stereotypical about our European cousins, but I've got a French wife, so I know all about walking around France in the afternoon trying to get a sandwich at three o'clock, and you can't because everyone's at home in bed. I recognize that. (laughs) I mean, one of the barriers I see with a lot of what we're discussing right now in terms of the operationalization is the valuation regime and the fact that I'm glibly joking here, but kind of not joking. The essence and the foundation of a lot of real estate, particularly in the listed arena, is I sign up Amazon or Sainsbury's or whoever, Calfer, for a 20-year lease that runs a 4.5% yield, jobs are good and off to the pub. And the reality is that the valuation regime is still quite backwards looking in the sense that it's simply looking at comparisons with previous deals. And when we're thinking about this current landscape of running what are essentially operational businesses and the current landscape where there are going to be huge change and huge risks and huge costs coming down the line from climate change and the broader impacts that's going to have on society... Many people that have got common sense would say, well, hang on, the valuation regime cannot be fit for purpose. We cannot have a backwards-looking regime to value this stuff when we know, just by not being an idiot, that all of these things are going to happen. So how do we square that circle, Lizette? Well, yeah, I think we need to review how we value. I think it's not just backward-looking. It's all contract-based. It may be forward-looking, but it's all the certainties. It's the certain regulation that's already in place, 
it's your rental contract for the next five, ten years, depending on how long it is. Mm. It's not fit for purpose to what real estate looks like nowadays. Well, a lot of leases aren't that long, though. I mean, that's the thing. They'll still be... No, no, okay. You know what I mean? I think... But as long as there are no comparables, you don't make changes. And even if gut feeling says Mm. that mm, rents might decline or which is different which from can other be financials positive. but that's different from other asset classes right if i'm an actuary and i'm thinking well hang on how long are people going to live i'm taking a view right no but we see so much change coming no physical climate risk you know it's gonna happen well it's already happening it's the transition risk we've all made the agreement to be net zero by 2050 all the countries in which we live we know it needs to happen but it's not effective in regulation yet. So therefore, we don't take it into account. Well, the valuer doesn't. Mm. And therefore, I think it's both ways. Often people think, oh, let's not do it because it's downside risk. It's also the upside risk. You talk about operationalizing real estate. It's all the extra value you generate by working closely together with your users, providing additional services and amenities that have a value are not taken into consideration. And one of the problems I suspect are some of the structural problems, and this isn't just a real estate thing, I think this is with other sectors as well, and the principal problem being that he or she who pays doesn't necessarily benefit, not necessarily in the short enough time frame. So how do we deal with that? Because again, if you're an owner, you've got, say, a portfolio of offices and those are leased, you can make a bunch of changes, but if it's the tenant that pays most of the occupational taxes, and how do you benefit? Well, I think we have to look at the bigger picture. Some of the challenges we now have to face with, you talk about the multidisciplinary approach of real estate, that I think makes it really unique, because if you compare it to any other asset class, a single person can manage a $2 billion equity portfolio for example don't mean a human in real being estate anymore. you can computer will do it for you yes in real estate you can't and that the challenges we face whether it's climate risk demographics or anything needs that integrated perspective and we need to bring that together and also in terms of who pays who benefits what is the sort of unintended consequence if we don't do it just to give an idea of decarbonization We need to decarbonize the whole built environment. We know that transforming existing buildings is far less impactful on carbon emissions than tearing down and building new. Depends on the time frame, right? Because again, and I was talking about this yesterday with someone over lunch, you you can retrofit buildings, but often the plant machinery needed in those buildings to do a good job might have a much greater embodied level of carbon than the next one. So again, from my perspective, it's thinking about over what time frame are we considering this, right? And is that five year, 10 years, 50 years? It makes a difference to the numbers. It does. But as far, I think, as technologies advance now, still using, especially because most of the embodied carbon is in the yeah, materials, yeah, in the, the steel, concrete, yeah. etc., yeah, yeah. And tearing that down is just so intense in terms of carbon emissions impact. But then kind of putting the full responsibility on the building owner, whether that's the individual resident or an institutional owner, it needs a broader view because we constantly need to kind of remind ourselves 
what happens if we don't do it? I feel generally still the thinking is nothing happens if we don't do it. If we do act, it costs us money. We should also become very aware of the deprivation that might happen if we don't do it. And that has, a, I think, a much wider either neighborhood or city effect. So the long-term effects of mass migration, of people moving, of civil unrest, all of these things which sound a little bit dystopian sci-fi movie but actually are real problems on the horizon, right? Well, that's very big macro level, even closer to home, say at neighborhood level in the communities where also our members operate, the social divide can get much bigger if we only transform those fancy, nice CBD offices, high-end residential, because there you can make the business case. But what it does in terms of social cost, if we don't do those other areas, and actually that cost often comes at the city level. So they will bear the cost. So in terms of if they would incentivize the building owners to do it, it would save a lot of costs later. And I think we need to have that integrated longer-term thinking to build that business case involving all the different stakeholders. And who needs to own that then? Is that something that needs to exist at a city level, a regional level? And what countries in Europe do you feel are most well-established or best structured to deliver that? We've done a lot of work around social value. And one of the conclusions we came to and also recommendation was around who needs to lead on this. And ideally... We think public sector should lead on it. City leadership. Real estate is a very fragmented industry. Ownership of even the biggest player is just marginal. And if you want to create social impact, you need to have a wider either city level or neighborhood level perspective. That will involve different owners. So setting that vision and strategy done by public sector makes most sense. I must admit, we got a lot of pushback from private sector on that. I'm not sure it's going to happen. Which groups? Well, across different groups. Because the reality is we don't see many cities taking that leadership position. I think it does show where it is the case. Mm. Well, there's some cities that have done it quite well. I mean, uh, it's worth reading that report. The report's called Zooming In on the S of ESG, and you can find it on the ULI website, just Google search zooming in on the SVSG. And I think one of the big questions, and we've covered this a lot on the podcast this year, actually, is the need both for absolute metrics and slightly softer measurement of these things, because it's never quite as simple as we've created this many jobs on a building site, or we've sent this many kids to school, or we've stopped these people going to the prison or whatever. These things are never quite binary in that sense, always. No, I agree. Let's move on to one of the other campaigns that I know you're very passionate about, which is the ULI Sea Change campaign. That's C, the letter C change. There's some great branding there from whoever came up with that. What are you looking to achieve there? Is there scope for ULI, given your broad membership base, given the position that you have? Is there scope to bring together some of these other groups? You were talking a little bit earlier, Lizette, about, for example reusing materials in building steel and concrete and you know when i talk to people that do this and some of the clients that i have the problems that exist really are around the insurance world and those developers being able to get the right warranties to use this stuff and the pushbacks always from insurers companies so well you know 
you know, if you had some research that studied the engineering qualities of this piece of steel, then we'd be able to insure it, but we can't because there's no precedent. It all comes back to precedence, right? And I wonder what mechanisms could exist to speed some of this up, bringing together the academics, insurance companies, and maybe thinking about maybe there's a few typologies that could be created and scenarios that could be replicated quickly in many cities rather than what seems to be happening at the minute, which is everybody doing their own thing many, many, many times over. Yeah, that doesn't really help. But I would say positively a lot is happening. Come back to your material example. On the timber, wood side, actually we've seen those issues, especially in the UK with insurance. In many other countries, the Netherlands, for example, they don't want to use anything else than timber anymore. So what's been happening now, there's a special foundation built by nature that has kind of come up with a playbook and we're also working with the insurance industry to this bring This is on that. timber structures. That's timber. Yeah, this, is, this is Andrew Waugh, who will be having on this podcast at some point. Waugh Thistleton Architect. He's the poster boy for timber. Shout out to Andrew Waugh. Great guy. Well, but if you look more broadly, a lot of the issues, actually, we see a big role for an organization like ULI bringing all the different professionals in real estate together. We've seen great work by other organizations developing roadmaps, action plans, and guiding companies through what needs to be done. What we saw also when asking our members what ULI should be focusing on was the difficulty in implementation. We talked about valuation before. Yeah. Valuation is a big hurdle because the cost of doing nothing is nowhere. So why would you be the first mover if that would mean higher costs, especially on the short term? And the evidence still largely lacking of what the added value, the upside potential is. Well, it takes conviction that many people, including most of our political leaders, sadly do not have. Yeah. And that's reality. I, I think at this point, I should really say thank you, Lizette. Thank you for all that you do for ULI and for the industry. You've been doing it for nearly nine years. You do an amazing job. And I suspect people probably don't say thank you enough. So on the record, massive thank you from the industry for doing a great job, particularly during difficult times of the last few years when you haven't been able to get on your bike quite so easily and cycle across Europe which I know, you know you're famous for doing. Let's move on. It'd be good to kind of talk about you know, some of those European trends that we're seeing in terms of, I suppose, Italy and Spain and a growing amount of institutional interest in Southern Europe. It's seen as a good value destination, particularly on the residential side. I'm interested by what you've been seeing on some of your travels to different places. We see quite some differences now across Europe in terms of how countries are affected by high interest rates, but also bigger trends like China suffering, which obviously impacts well, Germany a lot. Germany, yeah, yeah. If you look at Southern Europe, I think it's really a story of cities that have kind of picked it up. We see great momentum in Madrid. It feels like they're on the Madrid. growth curve that we were on in the UK back in 2005 almost, without sort of being dismissive of them. And I think that's a good thing. It seems also a matter of realizing they can take control of their own destiny almost, where city leadership... Look at Madrid, look at Milan, for example. You've really seen the city leadership picking it up. And investors are very aware of that. That's what have they done? For people that aren't familiar with Milan and Madrid, what specifically have those municipal leaders done that's affected positive change? Well, realizing, I think, that real estate construction and urban development is a key element to develop your city. And therefore, welcoming also 
private institutional investment to partner with them on doing that. Setting out clear guidelines on what's needed, what needs to be developed, but also providing the right incentives to do that. That if you do provide social housing or affordable housing, you get the chance to densify the plot that you're going to develop. So it's the carrot and stick approach. And I think you clearly see a balanced approach in that and very much tailored towards the carrot as well. Yeah, we don't really do carrots in this country, do we? It's not really an English thing. What about the Netherlands? Where does that sit on things that, you know, Holland is a favoured destination for logistics and industrial investment in recent years. And from what people seem to be saying, pricing has come back relatively quickly at the prime end of things. Where do you see it? I would position the Netherlands also in the stick field, if I'm really honest. And it makes my heart hurt because I think there is huge opportunity. But I think the political climate is very, very difficult at the moment. Mm. Obviously, we're waiting for new elections to come in. Where the Netherlands was a really welcoming country almost, also for institutional investment. We've seen that change completely over the last few years. Now, institutional investors bought big real estate, mostly residential portfolios. They're all thinking of leaving because it's been a total change. It's interesting because the outside in view still seems to be very positive on a comparable European perspective. The inside in view is very different. Mm. And we see residential investment holding back. There's a big nitrogen issue that may not exist anywhere else, but it's basically holding back all real estate development at the moment. So we're hoping for better times, but for the moment it's quite tough. And is this sort of black cloud of political unrest, is that going to mask returns in the sector over the next couple of years? It seems to be quite a problematic and pervasive issue, this rise of right-wing politics in many places. I appreciate you don't lobby, but we're talking about macro risks here and general sentiment that drives away investment. And that seems to not just be something happening in France or England, but across many European countries. Well, you do see political risk being an important factor, obviously. And in a bigger sense, if you compare Europe to Asia Pacific and the US, I think it may not be in the best position. And political risk is part of that as well because it gets more unreliable or unpredictable of what investors can do and can't do. And investors like clarity. And if that's not there, then they hold back. We've seen that with Brexit for a couple of years. No, well, There was yeah. no clarity. <laughs> and for a couple and, more decades, yeah. I suspect. But. <laughs> well, it's already cleared up a lot, I think. London has been the top number one city for the last few years in our emerging trends report. So once that clarity is back, they can incorporate the risks. Mm. I guess in terms of some of the things that have shaped your career over the years, so you went into ING in the mid 90s, not in property on the investment management side, you spent a bit of time in Italy, at CBRE, Global Investors, you ran InRev for a bit. Tell us about some of the milestones on your career. Who were some of the people that shaped you, that gave you great advice that you ignored or took or whatever? The people that kind of supported me in real estate. My first boss in real estate was Robert Lee. He was head of research and strategy, I think it was called at that time, at ING Real Estate. 
someone who had no clue about real estate. The added value of hiring me, I think, has been a great support. Throughout my career at ING, also Peter Hendricks was a subsequent boss who led the real estate business at ING Real Estate in Europe for quite some time. Was also very involved with INREF, one of the founders, alongside uh, Jan-Willem de Geus, and got me active there and really enthusiastic. And INREF obviously was totally different. We were only with two people when I joined, coming from a conglomerate almost, as ING was, where you take so much for granted and then find out that basically you need to do it all yourself. At INREF, it's been a huge learning curve. I've really appreciated that. And especially also the realization that if you take a decision, might not be the best one. You just try. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, try something else, which obviously in a big company is slightly different, where you kind of go more from left, right, back. And sometimes the rationale between decisions are less clear. And then the international experience. I was in Italy during the financial crisis. With hindsight, I've learned a lot and I've really appreciated my husband and I and the family look back on a fantastic experience. But at the time, it was tough being part of a sales process at ING, where ING had to kind of repay government support and as a result of that decided to unwind its real estate business in the financial crisis where Southern Europe was hit massively. Mm. It was quite tough. Yeah. And you met your husband at work. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> when we just started, first job. <laughs> so that's great. You wouldn't get away with that now, of course. But, uh, <laughs> but, but he's a school teacher, right? So that gives you the freedom to be on your travels each week. Yeah. But you've got three relatively young children, still at home at least. How have you found being a parent, being a mother? How have you worked that alongside the quite intense demands that have been placed on you in business over the last 20 years? Well, my children haven't known me in any other way. So in that sense, I think it's business as usual for them. I try to balance work. I'm working from home when I'm not traveling as I live in the Netherlands and the offices here in London. So I'm also there. I'm either there or not there. As a day in the office is just at home. Yeah. And I try to take them whenever I can. I once took my daughter to China on a study tour when she was in the highest grade of elementary school. Like Beyonce on tour with her daughter, right? <laughs> Slightly different. My son is still eager. The oldest is a daughter and the other two are sons. And still keen to kind of come along whenever they can. But when I can, I try to take them. Not every time, obviously, but occasionally, yes, for them to also see the bigger perspective. And what do you see them going into? Do they have career designs established yet or is that still coming? No, I think that's still coming. My oldest son, the middle one, really likes what I do. He's hugely interested in geopolitics, economics and all of that. So that combination fascinates him. Ah, the other two I still, I think. My daughter loves baking. She's just changed her education to become a baker. 
Our baby sister has just gone to Italy to become a, she's studying whatever the qualification in being a pastry chef is. Forgive me, I have no idea what it is, but that's what she's going to do. Well, that's her ambition as well. But first you need to learn the basics. So that's where she's now, but she hugely enjoys it. Well, I can it. put you in touch. Likes and the practical. If anybody listens to this that's got a spare babysitter kicking around, we're now <laughs> one down. But I'd like to ask you a little bit just before we go about Urban Plan, which is a charity. I mean, the ULI itself is a not-for-profit, but you have a charitable arm called Urban Plan that supports children, it supports career development in schools, looking at establishing better links with the real estate industry. What can companies do to take advantage of Urban Plan, Lizette? And what sort of benefit do you see that being able to generate? Well, I think the biggest advantage is being able as volunteers, people from the industry volunteer while the program is run by professional facilitators, but spend time with those children, those pupils, because they tell you how they want to live and work and play. And that those are the generations we're building for. So the opportunity to hear from them how they view their built environment and the environment they live in and how they would like to see it built, I think is hugely beneficial. I'm a volunteer myself. I've been from the day I started at ULI. It is so inspiring. And those out-of-the-box ideas you get from talking to them and listening to them, I think is so beneficial and mm. so inspiring. And there's a number of London major companies have been involved with Urban Plan over recent years, from Harrison Street, Orion Capital Managers, Land Securities, Grosvenor. So many opportunities for colleagues across the sector to get involved. Just search ULI Urban Plan, or I'm sure they can contact you, Lizette, via email, can't they? Yeah, very. Well, look, we've covered tons of ground. It's been wonderful to have you on here finally over the years. And thanks for being a good sport with all the, the questions. And look forward to uh, you know, catching up with you soon. And, and obviously, ULI have got a number of events coming up in the coming months. And the Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends Report with PwC will also be worth engaging with uh, so thank you very much to Lizette Van Duren for coming on Chief Executive of ULI Europe I've been Andrew Teacher you can subscribe to Propcast on Apple on Amazon on Spotify SoundCloud wherever you get your podcasts from just search Propcast send us some recommendations send us some abuse send us some nice warm donuts or uh, recommend your babysitters here we'll see you very 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 soon thanks very much for listening take care <laughs>